Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Okay, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great delight of talking uh, for the first time on the podcast, definitely not to be the last. I think I want to make this a regular thing from now on. Uh, talking to herpetologist Jessica Ferguson, aka Queen Snake, on Instagram and elsewhere. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is so this is so fantastic. Um, <laughs> so you know, as I've told you many times in our correspondence online, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I always I wanted to be a herpetologist. I've been obsessed with snakes and turtles and and lizards and salamanders since I was a little kid. I worked at pet stores just so I could be closer to these creatures. I in the summers I spent you know, every chance I could out in the woods and my bedroom when I was a kid looked like a, like a pet store. It was just like wall, <laughs> wall to wall, like, like just aquariums and terrariums. And I like, my room had like a humidity of like 90%. It was ridiculous. Um, but yeah. it was just all like kind of, uh, it was pretty, pretty intense. Uh, but so you are, you are doing what, I wanted to do when I grew up. So I, I'm curious, how did you, like, what brought you to herpetology? I mean, that's a great question. And my response to that is fairly similar to a lot of the other biologists that I'm familiar with. Um, I was really fortunate when I was a kid uh, in those formative years to have access to the outdoors. My parents had a, a boat that they kept near the Kingston area. And Frontenac is just a really phenomenal area for uh, herpetofauna. So when I was growing up, I was interacting with all of these wild animals. And it was this really, really phenomenal experience for me. Um, I, you know, in my teenage years, I kind of veered away from that a little bit. But uh, I started working with the Kortha Turtle Trauma Center, which is now the Ontario Turtle Conservation Center located in Peterborough. And that really directed me back on track um, through a lot of those volunteer activities that I that I engaged in as well. I really built up this network, and I've actually been working in herpetology for about ten years now. Mm. So it was, um, you know, one thing that I, I remember when I was, uh, I guess, about twelve years old. I went to my mother said, "Well, if you want to be a herpetology herpetologist, you have to 
she had sort of she's very practical and she she said, well, here's what you have to do, and you have to do this and this and this. And then she found out that there was a herpetologist at McGill named David Green. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, which of course you, you, I'm sure you know about him. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so she actually like she said, you know, you should go and meet him. And so I went to I I was about 12 years old, and I I called him up. I cold called him, you know, like at 12 years old, and I said. Hey, I'm like, I'm really, really psyched. I'm really kind of obsessed with frogs and salamanders and all this stuff. And like, um, can I come in? You know, I would really love to meet you. Like you're an actual herpetologist, you know, in this <laughs> frozen wasteland of fucking Canada. Like, so, uh, so I, so I, I went and I met him and I was just, you know, I imagine what I must have been like now I'm 45. I, I must have been just talking a mile a minute. Like, and then, and then like just tell you all this stuff. And he said to me, he said, um, and, and I want to ask you about this actually. He said, you know, he looked sort of, he, he looked really psyched like for about 80% of me, you know, talking about what I was interested in. And then he got this look of real sadness in his eyes. And he said, um, look, John, um, I remember what it was like to be as excited as you are right now. That's why I got into this. I remember being as, I remember that sense of wonder and excitement and magic that you have. And he said, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but something about the way that training works at the moment and something about dissecting lots of these animals and in a lab and, and doing the kind of tests and stuff like that. It just, you know, it's not, I love my job, but he said like, I look at you in the way you're talking right now. And I really miss feeling that way. I, oh, I miss, okay. he's like, I miss that excitement. I miss that sense of wonder and that sense of awe. And I, mm -hmm. I don't have it anymore. And I, mm -hmm. and that makes me like really sad. And he said, so my advice to you would be, um, if you can keep this as like, like a hobby and a passion on the side, um, and, and keep reading, you know, read the literature, learn all the Latin names, you know, like there's, he told me all the things to like, you know, to, to follow and everything. And he said, but I wouldn't recommend, I, I don't feel comfortable giving you advice and saying, do what I did because mm -hmm. I did what I did. And I've come to a place now where, and I, I really don't want to misrepresent what he said here. He, he wasn't saying that he regretted his life. He was just saying that something about the professionalization and the study had killed his first love. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering because what comes through to me, and one of the things why I, I absolutely love, like your, I, I, I just, I look forward to all of your posts, like on Instagram and on like, and one of the things that comes through to me with you and also Ryan Wolf uh, and a couple of mm -hmm. other people is that you clearly fucking have that first love. You still have that that sort of religious, almost like wonder at yeah. at these things. <laughs> and I'm wondering what what happened to you or what didn't happen to you. 
like how have you been able to like maintain your first love uh, and also be kind of a professional scientist? I mean, that's, that's a great question. So I, I'm not sure that I can really speak to the same experience that David Green had described to you because I haven't taken a very academic route, especially comparative to his experience. I think that um, there can be sort of a sterile aspect in looking at things from that, that purely academic view. And I wonder if that was a contributor um, to his experiences to kind of, you know, make it play out the way that it did. Um, for me, I, you know, I... I get to work in two really phenomenal um, aspects of this job. I get to do primary research. So I'm out in nature, often by myself, just experiencing it and, you know, recording everything that I possibly can. And then I also work very frequently with the public and children. And I think that um, experiencing that raw excitement from them all of the time uh, is really, really beneficial for me. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm just a, a very outgoing and kind of passionate person anyway. Um, so I think that with those sort of three factors combined, um, it hasn't it hasn't brought me to that place. Uh, one thing that I, I think is relevant to mention is that you can definitely get sort of a fatigue when you're working with so many endangered species. So that is my focus. Primarily, I work with species at risk, herpetofauna. And it can be very challenging just because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of issues. You're dealing with um, government roadblocks and things like that. Um, and it's very challenging sometimes to work so closely with not only a species or a subpopulation, but also individuals with it, within that population um, and to see the effects that urbanization has on them and climate change and other pressures that face them. So um, while there definitely can be some fatigue and, and frustrations, I definitely still have that passion. Yeah. Well, definitely. I, I think what you said about working with kids, that is, that's, I mean, my wife and I ran a day camp um, for a couple of years called wild side day camp where we would take okay. kids, we would take kids out into uh, into nature and would like get them to you know learn all the names of the different flowers and plants and animals oh, and awesome. get them to find stuff and and yeah you can you can definitely see that that raw excitement you know um what um what's his name called uh, biophilia right like that mm -hmm. we have this natural love of the of the flora and fauna you know and this curiosity and this kind of wonder right that kids mm -hmm. have and when you do when you experience that with kids as a as a grown-up you sort of it, it's sort of like there's that wonderful line in the new testament where jesus says like if you want to discover the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. And there's something about like when you see things, like I remember when my son Tristan, my firstborn, uh, he's 17 mm -hmm. now, but the first time <laughs> I remember like going to the park to get a Christmas tree with him when he okay. was just little and, and it started snowing and he had never seen s snow before. And his eyes were just like saucers and he was just like <laughs> fuck like he was just like completely blown away and wow. it sort of made me realize yeah snow is pretty fucking amazing like you know like, <laughs> like everything's covered in this white stuff yeah that's pretty freaky like how did i ever see this as normal like you know so and then you know and seeing a snake for the first time when you were the kid and they're like, yeah, there's this animal that like has no legs and can move faster. I can <laughs> yeah. move faster than you. Like, wow, what a boss move that is. You know, like, so it's, totally. uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, there. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of maybe, maybe it has, maybe it has something to do with like being, 
you know, more of an e- ethologist where you're sort of like out in nature observing animal behavior rather than like taking them into a lab and, and cutting them up or something. I, I don't know. I, I'm not yeah. sure. Like maybe maybe when you spend a lot of time in a white coat rather than in like, you know, overalls. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> waiters, yeah. <laughs> yeah, waiters. Like maybe like maybe it's easier to see the wonder in waiters than in like a white coat. I, I don't know. I, I mean, again, I can't speak for the academic route, but that would be, I mean, I definitely echo that sentiment. Um, you probably remember one of the posts that I made this past summer, 2019. Um, I actually, so I'm working with the Carolinian population of gray rat snake, which is endangered. The subpopulation is endangered uh, in Canada. And I was doing radio telemetry tracking the snake. And I actually saw it predate a rose-breasted grosbeak nest. So I'm just sort of tracking the snake. and I, I remember it and so, yeah. so perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And I just watched the snake, you know, maneuver up and then just, do its thing. And the birds were doing the same, obviously a little bit less pleased than the snake was, but being able to be privy to those types of experiences, I think really, I don't know, it's looking at things through a different lens and it's very, very powerful to be a part of that, to be an observer. Yeah. I mean, and that, yeah, it definitely is a very different, like, you know, I remember there was this one post that you made. You were down in Florida, and you made a a post about a, a corn snake, right? And yeah. uh, my son Indy has had a pet corn snake since he was. I mean, he's 16, 16 now, and of course, he's named after the indigo snake. Oh yes, <laughs> but, um, yeah. That's I did not going That's how hardcore I am, Jessica. Love uh, it. So um, he's named after the largest snake in North America. So, uh, but uh, but he's sixteen. He's had a pet corn snake since he yeah. was like a little kid, and um, okay. he got it when he was a little baby, like freshly hatched, and it's in his room in a big tank. But you know, it's a captive snake and so you know it comes out a lot it's very friendly very docile and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but he just his response when he looked at that he's like i didn't realize he he named it corny of course because you know kids are (laughs) yeah kids are not very creative when they're that age it's like not so much (laughs) yeah they get a dog with a spot they're like it's quite spot you know yep (laughs) it's quite corny (laughs) so anyway but like uh well, actually, he named his cat an interesting name. His cat's name, our cat, is named Chicken. Oh. <laughs> because he okay. liked, because he liked chicken. <laughs> and so he named him Chicken. But, uh, but anyway, like, so he said, yeah, I didn't realize corn snakes could move that fast and look that graceful and, and elegant because mm. he just sees, like, a kind of docile, captive corn snake. So mm-hmm. I think you get a different impression of these animals if you see them in the wild like in in their house versus your house definitely definitely i've had corn snakes for years and years and my encounter with that corn snake was unlike any other that i've ever experienced Uh, and it was again just this really phenomenal moment to be part of with you know the snake and my friends uh yeah it's definitely different when you're experiencing them in the wild yeah well, the I mean, what are some of the, I mean, I know you probably have hundreds, but when you just reach back in your memory, what are some of your sort of top, uh, top three, top five most memorable kind of uh, moments of things that you've seen with like, you know, with reptiles or amphibians? 
Oh, that is a tough one. Um, so I think <laughs> that rat, <laughs> yeah, so many. Um, so I do think that rat snake, um, with the predation event was one of the most amazing experiences that I've ever had out in the field. Uh, I have experienced, you know, snakes predating other animals before, but. Uh, yeah, so just for our listeners who haven't seen this, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll link to it when we post this episode, but it's this big rat, gray rat snake. Uh, going up a tree and going and eating all of these babies alive out of a bird's nest. <laughs> it's yeah. so fucking intense. <laughs> it's like one. It could be like one of those like clips on you. Know, do you follow Nature Is Metal? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it could be one yeah, of those. Happens. Yeah. It could be one of those Nature Is Metal things. I sent it to Joe Rogan right after you posted it. <laughs> like I was oh, like, did? yeah, oh, I was like, that is so it totally like up his alley. You know? like, oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, yeah, it was this amazing experience because of the the interactions with the birds were very interesting as well. The female growth beak flew off of her nest, and the male sort of flew over top. He was flying around and watching the whole situation, whereas the female was trying to flush the snake away. And I mean, she was inches from me many, many times, and she was just so hyper fixated on what the snake was doing that I was able to be right in the middle of this this event and neither party was really paying any attention to me. So I got to observe and video the whole thing. It was really amazing. Um, I think as a second, probably when I was doing my indigo surveys this past November, um, so you likely saw those images as well, mm-hmm. I was able to take in um, a number of surveys over a couple of days for eastern indigo snakes and eastern diamondback rattlesnakes as well. So the first indigo that we saw, we had been searching all day and you know, the weather wasn't very favorable and we, we, thinking, we were thinking that we had struck out. Uh, we went to our last site and just as we're sort of getting out of the car and approaching uh, one of the hot spots, we see this massive female just just motoring uh, away from us. So we were able to catch her and I was able to pit tag them and uh, pit tag that individual. And that was just the power and uh, commanding presence exuded by that snake was unlike any other that I've experienced. And I think that uh, they're just to be a part of that was so phenomenal. So that was probably my number two. I'm trying to think of a good number three. Um, probably the first time I ever saw a spotted turtle in the wild. I was very fortunate uh, to be able to work with Scott Gillingwater, who it's is like it's like really finding like a unicorn or like a fairy fairy or something. I I mean the first time I yeah. saw one of those, I just I I remember I I remember perfectly because I was I was seventeen years old, and yeah. I I just I started crying, like <laughs> I was I was it was so beautiful. It was like double rainbow. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, crying. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! So <laughs> I was like, somebody, yeah. somebody slipped me some acid or something. Like it was <laughs> so beautiful. I was like, this is the cutest fucking thing in the history of cute things. Like, yeah, because not only do you know that it's this amazingly rare and important animal, but it's so beautiful and so cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that be your, uh, that be your number three. I think that would be my number three, but I'm going to sneak in another one. Uh, the first time I ever saw a turtle hatch. So I've been part of a number of uh, reintroduction and population augmentation programs where we, under permits, of course, collect turtle eggs or have turtles hatch in our laboratory. Um, we'll incubate the eggs and then we can release the turtles after the fact to help augment populations that are in decline. Um, the first time I ever saw a turtle hatch, it was a blanding turtle and it was a ray of sunshine, another double rainbow, rainbow moment for sure. Um, just watching that turtle kind of push its way out of the egg and take its first breath was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Wow. 
So then what would be, I, 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 I can keep going all day. Uh, what would be number four? <laughs> uh, like, well, I'm reliving all these moments as you're talking about them. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've never seen a, I've, I've never seen a Blanding's turtle in the wild ever. Uh, they're quite elusive and they travel a lot. Um, they really move around from, you know, from location to location um, throughout their active season. So you, if you encounter one while it's moving around, that's often your best bet, or while it's actually basking in a wetland, taking some binoculars out to a wetland and scanning uh, is a good way <laughs> to see a blending mm. turtle. Yep. <laughs> so what would be your number four? Number four. Um, probably the first time I ever released an eastern spiny softshell turtle. So that was another program that I was participating in where we were doing this population augmentation. Um, so we hatched uh, about 8,000 of the spiny softshells in the lab that year. And the first time that we were able to, you know, just go and release one of the cohorts, take one of those turtles and put it into the water, it just knows exactly what it's supposed to be doing. And it really kind of solidifies that you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually, that's one of the many questions I wanted to ask you is I have this sort of pet theory. I have no way to, you know, I have no way to actually verify this theory, but I've thought of at least, but it seems to me that a lot of successful species, um, including our own actually, uh, but a lot of successful species seem to have a small minority of of members of their species that for, for one reason or another, and I, I suspect that the usual Darwinian explanations, which are that it's just um, sort of either young males looking for mates or uh, or population pressures so they get like pushed out of a territory and they're looking for a new territory the the explanation the, the usual darwinian explanations are that when you find um, a species venturing far away from its usual range that it it was driven away by the desire to you know to try and like find food or find a mate. It was trying to eat or fuck. Like that was what it was doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um I I have a pet theory that that's that that's not true. That okay, okay, let me qualify that. Not that that's not true, but I suspect that even if a population um is doing fine and they have adequate resources and there's plenty of mates to go around, I I suspect that there's a a small percentage of the population that just has something which I would call for argument's sake, the wandering gene. They just have this desire for adventure and to wander right now. I mean, I've, I would say if I had to pinpoint the time that I, that I first kind of this idea came to me was I was in the middle of a field that was far Far, I'm talking like kilometers and kilometers away from any kind of wetland or any body of water, and I found a dead spiny softshell, like oh, in the middle okay. of in the middle of a field, and I was just absolutely kind of confused, right? And so I actually mm-hmm. I called David Green, and okay. he, and he said, well, you know, he he. he he gave me the usual sort of Darwinian explanations based on sort of what current evolutionary theory is. And he said, Mm -hmm. well, like maybe it was a male. And so 
we actually like checked out. In fact, it turned out it was not a male. It was a female, it was a female. right? Okay. So they said, well, maybe it was a female who's trying to find a place to lay her eggs. Sometimes they'll travel really far. I mean, there's stories of, of uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have friends who live on farms in, in the middle of southwestern Quebec that, you know, they'll find snapping turtles that are kilometers away from uh, the, the a body of water that dig mm-hmm. into the hay bales surrounding their vegetable garden and lay their eggs in there. And you're like, what? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, it just seems, <laughs> it seems like a really random move, right? So, uh, yeah. so he said, well, maybe it was a female who was looking for a place, a strange place to lay her eggs. Well, you know, did a, an autopsy. She didn't, she wasn't gravid. She had no eggs. She was just a young female that was, traveling do you recall what time of year this was uh when she died yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure when she died okay because it looked to me like she had desiccated which of course drastically slows down decomp and uh i couldn't Mm. tell tell you the truth i i don't know when like i don't know when she died yeah i mean it's a really good question i think that um, one thing that I just want to state overall is that uh, reptiles are very cryptic, and I think that there is a lot that we still have to learn about them and their habits. Um, it, it's very unusual, especially for that particular species. If you had said snapping turtle, you know, sometimes they do make larger overland movements for a number of the reasons that you've already mentioned. So food, security, territory, um, reproduction in whatever kind of um state that takes depending on the sex of the turtle um but for spiny soft shells it's very very unusual for them to go very far from water at all um if you're familiar with their biology at all you know they're very adapted to spending all of their time in the water exactly um, which is why it's so odd to find i mean i i named her bonanza (laughs) jellybean uh (laughs) you know after the the main character of one of uh, tom robbins's books even cowgirls get the blues with, you know, and so I thought she's just like this young woman who's just like out on a, an adventure, and uh, like she's not, you know, she's just she's she's like Queen Snake, she's Jessica, <laughs> she's just out there kind of exploring, and you cannot yes. reduce her behavior. <laughs> like she's not just yeah. looking for a place to have her kids or looking for a man she or for food she's just looking she's for her own ad- woman. she's just it you know she's just having an adventure so yeah i i think if, if my theory is that is that if you if you get you know when it, when it comes to any kind of species right you you look at like obviously there's certain traits that all members of a species have, which, mm-hmm. you know, you can deduce that, well, clearly this is very important to your survival. Like, I don't know, having a heart, you know, sure, <laughs> having lungs, <laughs> yeah. having, but then, and then there's things that are like important, but maybe not absolutely essential. So having legs that work, there's some people that are born without, without legs or with legs at mm-hmm. all, and they can like find a way to survive. Uh, but then there's like other these these sort of rare traits, which seem to provide some added fitness to the group, but maybe are not, you know, usually 
advantageous to the individual. So, I mean, an obvious mm-hmm. example would be like, I'm mostly colorblind, right? And so uh, colorblindness is mostly a negative, a net negative to the individual, but it has like some small benefits, which you can see how for the group might be useful, right? So uh, camouflage doesn't work on people who are colorblind. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's why like sniper rifles don't have, uh, they transfer everything to black and white because you can see through camouflage because camouflage is basically something that tricks the way that your brain interprets visual, you know, information. So you, you tend to smooth things over, right? You smooth over your blind spot, you smooth over a bunch of things. So camouflage, whether it's a tiger hiding behind a bush or a soldier in fatigues, uh, ca- camouflage works because our eyes smooth over visual data. But if you're colorblind, that smoothing doesn't happen. So you can be like, yeah, there's a fucking tiger there. Like <laughs> you can, you can just see, like you can just see yeah, there's a soldier right there. He's aiming a gun at you. So you can yeah. see it. So camouflage, like colorblindness is, you know, 95% bad. But if you have one person in the group that's colorblind, they can, see things that the other members of the group can't see. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a net positive to the group. Right. So I wonder if, you know, what you think about this, is it, does it seem plausible to you that there could be a sort of a small percentage of members of a population of let's say soft shell turtles or, or anything really Mm -hmm. um, that have this, desire to just wander and you know if you have a few if you think about the long stretch of evolution if you have a couple of these people and your species lives to what are they like 23 years what is the life expectancy for them for the soft shells yeah um actually a little bit longer but uh, in the wild they'll generally live to about um 20 30 years Okay, so if you have, like, one young woman who wanders off, right, and she finds a pond in the middle of, you know, this big random area that's all dry. Yeah. And she starts living a happy life there. And she's just all lonesome, right? And then, like, five, ten years later, a uh, another soft shell shows up. And it's mm-hmm. another you know, young young woman. And she just like, and so now there's two of them, right? And then like three years later, a dude shows up. Well, now, <laughs> now like softshell turtles have just uh, colonized a whole new area. Yeah, that's enough for establishment for sure. And, that, um, and so, and if you think, if you think over the course of like millions of years, if you have species that have a, you know, a good enough lifespan, where they can afford to like uh you know wait for a while if need be mm-hmm. right um this this could eventually add up to colonizing an entire continent uh, potentially i do think that there is that it's plausible i mean we see it in birds um a little bit the dynamics a little bit different but you know sometimes you get migrants that sometimes they're pushed in on certain um you know, wind streams, but sometimes they just sort of seem to appear. Uh, so it's definitely, it's definitely possible. 
Uh, one thing that strikes me about the soft shell that you had mentioned, and I'm sorry about this, but uh, one thought was that it could be predation. It's possible that it was picked up by a bird or um, potentially a mammal that carried it for a longer distance. Uh, but I do think that there is some some weight to what you had described before. I mean, excellent, species- excellent question. And that was David's first question. Uh, okay, she had no teeth marks, no uh-huh. no marks. She clearly had been eaten. Uh, by like uh, by beetles and ants and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Uh, insect, um, insects had eaten her up, but she had not been chewed on. Wow. By any raccoon or skunk or fox or anything. So no, she she That's didn't really have she didn't have that that obviously that was like that was his first question too. Like, well, did of she course. did she have chew marks, uh, mm-hmm. which could indicate that she was maybe carried a long way, um, but. Uh, no, nothing. Wow. The lack of that is very interesting because it does further support what you're proposing. Uh, generally, like I said, they don't travel very far from water. So, yeah, they'd just be looking for a new place to colonize. Yeah. Uh, another another you're question, right. another random question I had was uh, <laughs> sure. I, I had uh, I had a, a pet blue spotted salamander when I was mm. a little kid. And uh, and I, I named him Jesus. <laughs> I I was a little kid. No pressure, yeah, yeah, and uh, I named him Jesus. And uh, I was like, and and the thing is, is like I had a couple of friends who who had warned me, you know, um, including my friend Marshall, who was like, okay. the, he owns a pet shop now, and um, which my son Tristan works for. Uh, but uh, he. Yeah, he told me he's like, no, 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 don't keep them. They're like, they're really, really finicky. They need it really cold. They need it like he's like, no, they're terrible. Don't keep them as pets. He's like, okay. But <laughs> I, 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 I was a little kid and I ignored him. So I, I took this. I had caught like you know this blue spotted salamander and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna keep him as a pet. So I put him in the the terrarium, and he immediately just dug himself deep in the earth, and mm. never ate and never came out. And and I was like, I I got like I was like, oh my god, Marshall was right. And so I, I dug him up and he was like he looked like completely dead. And I was like, oh god, I suck. I'm such a terrible pet owner. So um I basically this was like after winter had, had hit and uh, okay. and so what I did was I I put him inside like a like a like a box and I put him in the in the freezer in our freezer and i thought like when the spring thaw comes because there's this place down by the st lawrence river i lived you know about i grew up like about uh sort of i don't know a half a kilometer from the st lawrence river like really really close like super close to the st lawrence river so i mean like st lawrence river is my you know, I have deep connection to that river. I, in fact, in my my will, I'm I'm to be cremated and my ashes are to be thrown into the St. Lawrence River. But oh, I like bad. I want. <laughs> but anyway, so but I had a place down by the river where I would bury all of my uh, all of my dead pets, whether it be like my hamsters or my like lizards or my you know basilics and like everything. It was like sort of like <laughs> have you seen like Garden State? Uh, no, actually, the movie. Oh, 
<laughs> well, there, uh, there's that Natalie Portman, you know, one of the main characters of the movie. Okay. She has like tons of pets, and she has a pet cemetery, like okay. in her in her backyard, and it's like all oh, of no. her. She has all of her like goldfish and her hamsters and everything. It's like this like okay. elaborate <laughs> so this cemetery. Is you. Yeah. yeah, I had I had a cemetery down by the river, and so I was like, I'm gonna bury this like. I'm going to bury Jesus, uh, you know, down there. Right. So, yeah. Um, so I, I put him inside and I didn't tell my mom cause my mom was always like complaining about all of my pets getting loose and dying and stuff like that. So I put sure. it at the back of the freezer, <laughs> but, but we, we had a, we had one of those, like my mom was like, you know, we were kind of poor. My mom was on welfare till I was 14. And like, we were like, she was raising three kids as a single mom. And like, we didn't have tons of money. So, uh, she was like, uh, we had like kind of a, a clunky fridge that sort of sucked. But anyway, so we, you know, spring came and I was a kid and kids are stupid. And I had like just forgotten. And I, and I forgot right. about the salamander in the little box, like at the back of the fridge. I had completely forgotten about it. So, you know, it went and like, uh, you know, it was a, a while later, like a while later, like it was like a couple of a couple of like years like later oh my gosh <laughs> when when we suddenly like there there was a very hot summer and the oh. summer and the summer broke the fridge right it broke the fridge and it was like all this stuff and so uh, we're cleaning out all the fridge and then like this box comes out of the freezer and it's like the box that i had put the salamander in and I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, I felt like the worst person ever. Like, and so I just like grabbed it and I like I, I put it. And I was like, oh, my God, I felt so, so humiliated, oh. embarrassed. And my mom didn't see it. I just like grabbed it and I put it in and I was like, put it in my I think I put it in like my school bag or something like that. And I said, OK, well, I'm going to go and like bury it later on like after right. school i'm gonna go drive my little bmx bike you know like you know strange <laughs> oh, yeah. stranger things kind of i'm gonna go down to the the <laughs> cemetery and like and bury it afterwards so i put it in my bag and then you know i guess throughout the day it thawed um oh no you know? and so <laughs> i go down and i'm ready to like you know bury it and i open up this like box and it crawls out totally alive oh my goodness yeah that's bananas i know <laughs> i have been completely completely blown away by this um it, you know i mean i i told david green about this at, you know, yeah. after and i was like you know he is risen he is risen indeed. <laughs> you know, like yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, and he and he and he said, he's like, fuck. He's like, that's why they survive ice ages. That's why they yeah. survive all these. He's like, that makes perfect sense to me. He's like, they've done experiments in Germany with like ohms and things like that, where they sure. can live years and years without eating. And like I mean, what do you make of that? Like I mean, living for amazing. years. Yeah. I mean, because, this is know, why they've been have... around for like hundreds of millions of years. I mean, yeah, that adaptation is mind blowing. 
Um, it's interesting because, you know, we do have species that people very frequently reference when they talk about the ability to freeze and overwinter in areas where they have very little, um, where there's very little buffer between the actual individual and the cold. So one example of that is the wood frog, which can freeze um, up to about 75% of its body using uh, glucose and a urea kind of concoction. Um, mm-hmm. I've never heard of anything of that caliber with the blue spotted salamander. It's I mean, it does surprise me. I believe well, what, you. What David, what David Green said was, he goes, if you had a shitty f- freezer, mm-hmm. probably it wasn't actually getting super cold. And, and so, it was if just they sort of in a suspended state, yeah, like if it was because ba- there was, I, I put a bunch of dirt inside the box. Oh, and okay. so if it's okay. surrounded by a bunch of dirt, a bunch of like kind of moist dirt in this box in a freezer. Which sucks because it's not, uh, you know, it's not working properly. Yeah. So it's not really getting probably very cold. It's getting like maybe to sort of zero minus one. And that's kind of ideal hibernation condition. Yeah. So it probably was just (laughs) sort of in a very long hibernation. Mm -hmm. So, but he goes, but he goes, it is really kind of amazing that, um, he said, you know, I, I wonder if we if we experimented with that, like if we took species like that, like blue spotted salamanders or even mm-hmm. something more ambitious would be like like sort of like a like an eastern milk snake. And if we said, yeah. well, what happens if we put them in hibernation, if we create the conditions, what happens if we put them in hibernation for you know two years? Like are they okay at the other end? He goes, I, I'm guessing. Yeah. I think as long as they, which would is, have which is crazy. Water, yeah, it is. It is crazy to think of that uh, because they're really just suspending their animation for, you know, in this instance, years. Um, again, as long as they have access to water and they don't dehydrate, I would think that would be sort of the main hurdle for them to be able to overcome that sort of thing. Um, snakes will wake up when they're in hibernation. I don't know about, salamanders to the same degree but snakes will wake up when they're in hibernation you know they drink water and that sort of thing so as long as it doesn't actually desiccate and it doesn't run out of fat stores i guess i don't know i'm kind of speculating that's a pretty amazing uh observation that you had there john i i'm definitely going to be doing some more research into it i'm doing a deep dive this weekend i think <laughs> yeah well i mean another question i had which is related uh which mm-hmm. is uh, related to to salamanders um a lot of people who talk about um, the the possibility of extending human life. Uh, they say that you know the real the one of the big hurdles that we have is of course that you know we start off with these stem cells, and mm-hmm. stem cells can of course um, become anything, right? They can become like a bone cell, they can become a neuron, they can become a skin cell, they can become anything. Yeah. They're like little mm-hmm. little shapeshifters. <laughs> but but then once they sort of take a particular form, they they kind of fixate and they they can only produce another skin cell or another neuron or another you know whatever they can only produce yeah. like another cell of their kind. Um, mm-hmm. and, but the there are some species, uh, most notably in terms of vertebrates. Uh, the the only vertebrate that is truly outstanding in this respect is the salamander, which is one of the first vertebrates. And salamanders, 
retain a bunch of stem cells throughout their lives. And so they mm-hmm. can, of course, they can, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen like these these amazing kind of videos on Instagram or on YouTube where you have, uh, there's, there's one I'm thinking of particu- in particular where this, um, this this young woman who I follow, I, I'm blanking on her name right now, but like she she found like a a spotted salamander in her back in her backyard that had been okay. atta- attacked by a cat or a dog or something like that, and it had like ripped off one of its like one of its limbs and mm-hmm. like a and a piece of its face and some of its abdomen, and then she does like a time lapse photography, like she she took this little little cutie in and like had it and you know fed it and stuff like that and you just watch as it grows back it's it's internal organs it grows back a piece of its abdomen like it's one thing you know it's one thing for like a human to you know get a zit and then like cure from that or break your Mm -hmm. arm and your your bones re-knit and stuff like that but this is like something growing back an arm and like yes. half of its fucking face you know like and like yes. and organs and stuff like that and apparently salamanders do this because they retain all of these these stem cells right so mm-hmm. um i mean what do you know about that and what do you think about that in terms of like how it could potentially at some point apply to us Oh, that's, I think that question is probably beyond the scope of my expertise, but it is, I mean, I mean. Oh, no, I know. It's it's beyond everybody's. I'm I'm asking (laughs) just for you to to speculate because, you know, if if we could somehow figure out how to do that, then Mm -hmm. we we could take like my grandmother when she was dying of of lung cancer and we could say, okay, we're going to like take out one of your lungs that's infected with cancer and we're going to grow a new one. And then, you know, we'll give you like a new lung, <laughs> right? And then we'll, we'll then we'll take out the other cancerous lung and mm-hmm. grow a new one. And so now you've got two pink, brand new lungs, which replace the lungs that were destroyed by growing up in polluted Manchester, England. Like, I mean yeah. that that's like that's amazing. I. I would love to say that it's possible because, you know, we're seeing this in action with these salamanders. One thing that strikes me is um, the difference in our metabolism. Uh, Reptiles and, you know, amphibians have such comparatively slow metabolisms that I'm wondering if the way that they divert energy would be more conducive to that type of growth. That said, if you're, you know, if you're trying to mimic this in a laboratory setting, it may not, that may not even be a relevant hurdle. Um, you would only be dealing with sort of that implantation side of things. Um, and I, there has been some lab success growing. Oh, I can't remember which organ it was. can't remember offhand. Um, but when you're looking at limb regeneration with salamanders, you're looking at ligaments, um, blood vessels, bone, all kinds of different uh, tissue types that are being regenerated. And if we could mimic that, I think it would have completely uh, groundbreaking impacts on humanity. Yeah, because, the, you know, when a lizard... Like like an 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 oil or something like that like or an iguana like when they lose their tail right <clears throat> they grow back a tail which looks like shit 
I mean, like, yeah. like it's like it it's really sad. like it, it's like you know it's like you're fooling nobody, girlfriend. Like like <laughs> like yeah, you're really like your first one was so much cooler. Like but yes. the but when a salamander grows back, it's completely seamless. Like it's a it's a it's a limb that looks just like the others. It's like you can't tell yeah. the difference, which is. And I think- the comment about the seam is interesting as well because it's very clear on the reptile tail generally where, you know, which segment was ripped off and where the regrowth happens. Generally, I don't see that with salamander regrowth um, tails or limbs. When we are doing surveys, sometimes you can tell because the color is a little bit off or um, there's some kind of inconsistency, but generally seamless and very, very believable. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that kind of just sort of surprises me. Like, if we could somehow harness i mean i to some extent i understand why you know natural selection or you know i understand why nature didn't give us that superpower (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean because if you look at if you look in, in in nature like one thing you notice right like a lot of apex predators whether it be um tigers lions bears they don't live very long Right. I mean, they, no, they don't they generally speaking don't across the board. They don't they don't live very long, uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, especially terrestrial ones. They don't live very long. Yeah. And if you think about the counterfactual, like imagine a tiger that lived 80 years. I mean, oh that yeah. <laughs> that tiger would exhaust its resources. That species would yes. ex- it would exhaust its resources and therefore render itself extinct probably mm-hmm. within you know within a, a couple hundred years like it would just be it would be a, a devastating sort of effect on and i think probably the reason why we live as long as we do is because you know like like humboldt squid or or raccoons oh, yeah. or we were sort of for most of our evolutionary past we were in the middle of the food chain we were getting eaten a lot so Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense why why we we reproduce so much and live so long because probably most of us didn't, you know. But but uh, but it'd be cool if we could somehow harness that superpower if we figured it out, right? Oh I yeah. Mean, I mean, I would love to. Uh, I mean, what you know, going back to your like, this are the top three, top five like list. My mm-hmm. probably my number one. Um, my my number one for you know most magical moment for me would be and I've you know it amazes me that you've just seen dozens of these things hundreds <laughs> of these things I've only seen one in my entire life at 45 I was an eastern fox snake oh uh, yes. I, I've seen <laughs> I've seen I've found one in my entire life I was a teenager it was in the Muskoka Lakes region Okay. And I've never forgot it. It was absolutely magical and, and wonderful. I'm wondering, what is your experience of that species? Uh, I I really love the fox snake. <laughs> it's one of my favorite species, um, although don't ever ask me to pick just one. Um, but, you know, they're really... Why? Why? Uh, because yeah. I have about 12 favorites. <laughs> um, just to speak to that for a moment, I think... I just, I love our native species so much and really each one of them kind of speaks to me in a different way. Um, They all have their own really amazing adaptations or uh, features or uh, demeanors. And 
I feel like I appreciate each one and I don't want to. <laughs> uh, but for the fox snakes specifically, uh, they tend to be very, uh, very gentle, a gentle species, which is, you know, really nice to work with because they're a little bit larger. So if I'm doing work by myself, um, sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge to work with these six foot long uh, rat snakes. <clears throat> and fox snakes are, are pantherophis as well. So they're rat snakes also. Um, but, you know, when they're getting to about sort of six feet, in length, they can be a little bit challenging to work with, especially if you're trying to measure the animal by yourself. Do this pit tagging where you're essentially inserting a microchip, just like you would on a cat or a dog. Um, but the fox snakes are so relaxed. Um, that's always been my experience with them. They're very, yeah, just very calm, uh, beautiful, beautiful animals. Yeah. I'm always in awe when I see one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because you know one of the things I know you and and Ryan Wolf and a number of other people have been talking about is um, the fact that uh, that that idiot that you've got running your province. Uh, you know, one of, one one of the things he has said is uh, it. He said it's no longer if something's only found in small numbers in Ontario, uh, we're not going to call that an endangered species. Yeah. Right? And I, yeah. I I brought this up in one of my classes, and I was surprised to find that, you know, these students who are super, super environmentally conscious, like really green, very kind of like, um, overwhelmingly, I was surprised to find that they all totally agreed with it. They thought, well, they thought, they thought, well, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. They said, um, they said national borders, provincial borders, these are, you know, human-made constructions. They're totally artificial. They have nothing to do with the migratory patterns of, like, birds and turtles and whatever, insects. Yeah. And uh, this is an artificial human thing that we're putting on the map. Um, it doesn't change, like, weather patterns. You know, it doesn't change, like, all these things. So... Yeah, mm -hmm. if uh if if the map turtle if the if the northern map turtle is, you know, quote unquote endangered in the province of Quebec mm -hmm. but is not actually endangered in North America, um calling it endangered just because we don't have a lot of them in Quebec is kind of dumb, right? And they, they yeah, were like, okay. I was I was just completely kind of floored because I was sort of mm -hmm. telling them I was like recounting this like, yeah, like what an idiot he is. And, <laughs> sure, and, yeah. and like, yeah, and Jessica and Ryan are so right because they're cool and I like them. <laughs> and they were just and they, they were like, no, no, uh, he may be an idiot, but he's right about that. Uh, that is dumb. Like, there's no reason why they should have special protection just because. You don't have a lot of them in Ontario, like so. Mm -hmm. uh, how do how do you respond to that? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a great question too. I definitely I see that perspective, but it doesn't negate the fact that these animals have um, they're in a sort of a niche in Ontario. And you know, using your map turtle example, um, if map turtles were to disappear from Quebec, um, that does leave a hole in the ecology of Quebec. Um, you know, it's an arbitrary human border, but it's still important that map turtles are there and present and doing what they need to do in the environment. Another human thing that has been... Yeah, zebra sort of forced, hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that, is, that is hugely 
hugely a positive impact that the uh, that the mat turtles are having. You know, they do consume a lot of zebra mussels, um, and zebra mussels have the numbers have gone down drastically in the past 10, 15 years. Um, and I think I think to a large, large extent largely. because no, but I think in you know one one there's a lake that uh, uh, my my family we go to with our friend Round Lake, you know, uh, not far from Ontario, from Ottawa in Ontario, and they have a map turtle population, and the okay. large adult female map turtles have single handedly. <laughs> fucked those zebra mussels up like they've oh, yeah. just they've figured out how to eat them and yeah. they have they have just you know eliminated the problem it's a buffet it's great yeah like once they figured out they have like eliminated the problem yeah uh, and that's obviously had a hugely positive impact um the other note that i would make um just to that is that um, you know the reason that the animals are in decline is almost completely human caused. So we may have these arbitrary boundaries on them, but the reason that their populations are shrinking so much is because of human accelerated climate change, anthropogenic climate change, and urbanization. So we're the driver for their decline, and I think it's important that we take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the places when my wife and I were thinking about where we want when we were living, when we were in Baltimore, and we were thinking about where we wanted to settle down, and we had sort of our, our, we were looking at the globe, sort of spinning the globe and like, where do we want to live? <laughs> yeah. And we kind of like, we're sort of, we had, you know, we, we actually really thought about this. We like spent like a while and we, we came up with like pros and cons and we had like a top 10 list. And one of the places mm -hmm. that was like high up on our list was Singapore, which is a, a place that I absolutely adore. I love okay. Singapore. And one of the things I, 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 you know, I spent some time there when I was younger. And uh, one of the things that I, I hear again and again from people in Singapore when they criticize our way of thinking about nature in North America and in Western Europe. And they say, well, part of the problem that you guys have is uh, you think about nature as being this thing that's over there. And then, like, human society <laughs> yeah. is this thing that's here. And so your mm -hmm. your solution is always some sort of variation on the German romantic notion of, like, we should just build a fence around this fucking thing. And it should just be a preserve. And, like, no evil human people should go there. And, <laughs> and we should just, like, let it go completely wild. Uh, and that's, like, the best thing to do, you know? And that mm -hmm. that's, like, the... And and their attitude is like that's that's ridiculous. Like humans have been um, reshaping ecosystems for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, we we you know the most current theory about the Amazon is that we're looking at like uh, an overgrown ancient orchard. Uh, mm -hmm. That that uh, humans have been an integral part of the ecosystems that they've been a part of for a very long time. And that yeah. we've, we've been, and so that this is, this idea is dumb. Like that yeah. actually <laughs> that. And so in Singapore, their attitude is very much like we have to find a way to like coexist in urban environments with, uh, with wild animals. So, I mean, you've seen it's what they've critical. done in, in Singapore. They have, They've brought back all sorts of poisonous snakes right in the middle of their city. 
They have oh. like they have king cobras and they have otters and they have right in the middle of their city in urban areas. Okay, and they coexist with them, and they uh, they you know whenever I like I've had so many online like arguments you know friendly but very spirited arguments with sure. with with people who are as obsessed with with sort of reptiles and amphibians as you and I are. Uh, mm-hmm. With people, they just have a totally different vision there. They're just like, you guys are all about, like, creating these islands of, uh, of... You basically see, you have a view of nature that's very... as they When they, wanna, when they really want to insult me, they're like, you have, like, a view of nature that's very Christian. They're like, it's... Even if you're mm. secular or you're atheist, you have a, an essentially Christian view that somehow... Humans are these evil aliens that corrupt everything they touch. And so the best thing you can do for plants and animals is to sort of cordon them off in these Mm. reserves where you just let everything go wild. Right. What Mm. do you, what do you think about that? I think that that is a huge problem. I agree <laughs> with, um, you know, your associates from Singapore. Wow. I did, I did not it, expect you to agree. This is fun. <laughs> the reason that I say that is because the more disconnected, the more separation that you create between humans and nature, the more disconnected you become. And it's very challenging to get people to care about something that they're completely disconnected from. How do you continue to fund conservation efforts when people don't care? I mean, if you, you know, if you, fence these animals off in this little area where humans aren't allowed to enter. They don't experience how amazing these, these ecosystems and the species that dwell within them really are. Uh, and you, you just lose touch. You're not going to care. You're not going to provide any support to protecting nature in the future. Another really big problem with that kind of mentality is that it creates um, over time a genetic bottleneck. If animals don't have the freedom to move from you know site to site and they don't have these travel corridors and they're contained in smaller areas, you are really creating a lot of problems for that species down the line. Even if they're able to persist, you can potentially introduce things like inbreeding depression, which can have ripple effects down the line. So I think it's not, I kind of think that their point of saying that it's a very Christian outlook is is really interesting because, you know, post-colonization, our country was really founded on a lot of religious ideals, Christian ideals. So it's very interesting to hear that particular comment. Um, But I think it's really important to immerse people in nature as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why my wife and I uh, started Wildside Day Camp was because we, we felt like there was this, this sort of pernicious, you know, and unintended, right? I mean, people involved had nothing but good intentions, but we thought that there was this pernicious effect where if kids, uh, we noticed that a lot of the young kids that, you know, when our, when our boys were young, they could name like a bunch of dinosaurs and they knew all these animals on the Serengeti and the, you know, Africans plants, but they didn't, they couldn't name any of the plants and animals like in their immediate environment around Montreal. For sure. You know? And so they had like all this. And so they, and I, and we thought, you know what? There's something very, very dangerous about thinking that nature is something that you experience uh, when you go like 
on on ecotourism in Costa Rica, or yeah. you go to like, or you watch like nature shows. And so I I mm-hmm. I, I wrote this this article a number of years ago called uh, "Why I'm Sick of British Nature Porn." So and <laughs> okay, and it, it it got I got like so much hate mail like in response to this. But one of the one of the things one of the positive responses I got, David Suzuki was like, he he said, yeah, I totally. He said, because uh, I I I I've known him since I was like nineteen, and uh, okay. and he said and he said, yeah, I totally get your point. He's like, but he goes, I don't think you articulated it well, John. He goes because it make it makes it sound like you don't like nature shows, uh, oh. <laughs> and I actually love nature shows. But my point my point was that uh, which he got you know, immediately was that nature shows reinforce this view of this separation between human, human beings and nature that somehow there's like city life and our lives that are over here. And there's nature. That's something that you go and visit when you go to mm-hmm. Banff, when you go to Banff or you go yeah. to, uh, you know, when you go to Algonquin. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, and so, and so, and so, our anyway. our point with the day camp was to take these these kids to large nature parks in the Montreal area, where mm-hmm. you will actually get to see the Cooper's hawks and the like. You'll get to see the like all of the 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 owls and get to see like the blue spotted salamanders and the like spotted salamanders and the milk, yeah. milk snakes. And you'll get to see like the plants and animals in your immediate environment. And so you feel much more rooted in place. Right. Yeah. Because like one of the big problems with uh, globalization as presently conceived is that it's all sort of predicated on this kind of denial of place. Right, that like place doesn't matter. You know, we can sort of act like like we're outside of nature when, of course, mm-hmm. we're we're completely inside it. Right. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering because I I noticed that in a lot of your your posts and you know and Ryan does this and you know lots of people do this. They say like, oh, you know, these animals were handled according to all of the permits and all this stuff. And there's this idea that somehow. Uh, Nature is something that only professionals who have like degrees and have like authorization are allowed to interact with. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, I understand why that is a thing, but mm-hmm. do you think that that can be like a problem sometimes? The reason, sorry, I'm just kind of thinking on that because, yeah, the reason that I do it is because. Sometimes the snakes are posed in a way that um, sort of implies that they've been handled, or I'm saying that I'm doing this, you know, invasive, a pet tagging implantation is not something that you need a veterinarian for, but it's very important that you're trained and that you understand the physiology of the snake and things like that. So it's, it's very important for me to convey when I'm posting things like that, that it is being done in a responsible manner. Um, I think it's very, very important that people go out and experience nature, and I want I want everybody to see a fox snake. I want everyone to love them as much as I do. Um, but I don't want them handled in a way that would be detrimental to them. 
Um, and that can, you know, that can apply to other species like the bats that I've posted, for example, maybe a little bit harder to get your hands on a bat than a snake, but um, still the point remains that um, I really want to portray that the animals are being handled responsibly. Um, how does that come into play when you're looking at um, people kind of distancing themselves from nature? It could potentially be a perceived barrier. I definitely don't want it to come across that way, but yeah, I think it probably does. Yeah, because I know that this is something that I've I've encountered here in Montreal. There's this group um, of very you know well-meaning sort of uh, people, various you know conservationists and naturalists, and very kind. They're they're a very well-intentioned, loving group. I, I don't want to okay. like, uh, but they're the, the this group called Friends of the Mountain. And okay. they they basically uh, amis de la montagne, and they basically they um, they they're a group that sort of tries to take care of Mount Royal Park. And you you went to McGill, so you know like Mount Royal Park and stuff like that. Hmm. And they uh, I was a member of the group. Um, I ended up resigning from the group um, because of sort of ideological differences that I had with them. But they I mean because they. They have this very, very, uh, and this is one of the many questions I wanted to ask you. They have this very intense view of like uh, invasive species, right? Okay. Which, you know, I'm I'm very, very skeptical of the entire notion of invasive species because I understand if you're talking about the ecosystem of like a an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or some sort of very, very isolated ecosystem. Uh, I understand that, yes, you can have invasive species that come into that ecosystem and cause mm-hmm. havoc. But if you're talking about an ecosystem in an incredibly competitive environment like you have in the North American continent, which mm-hmm. is one of the most competitive ecosystems on planet Earth. I mean, there's and changing a, quickly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why... When North America and South America connected, the North American plants and animals fucked up almost all of the South. <laughs> they yeah. they completely took over almost every single niche, right? With some exceptions. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. a reason for that. It's because North American uh, an- plants and animals had been sort of regularly interacting with, with the Asian, Eurasian continent with like many so um i think talking about invasive species in a in a place like montreal is is <laughs> mostly a misnomer like and so I one of the things one of the things that they would do uh this is why i actually resigned from la montagne was they would every year go all over the mountain and collect greater burdock Okay. Which is, you know, one of my favorite flowers in the world. It's a plant that I have great affection for, and they would cl- they would rip them all out of the ground, and then burn them all in a big bonfire because they declared that they were an invasive species. This strikes me as insane because greater burdock puts down deep, deep roots that bring up water and nutrients. Uh, from far deeper than almost you know almost anything else can go 
in terms mm-hmm. of like quick growing plants. And if you if you just observe a mature two, three year old greater burdock plant, it you know, they produce so much nectar. They can feed an entire beehive. Like they feed, you know, hundreds of butterflies a day and humming hummingbirds. They are a net positive to whatever ecosystem they're in. And because they have such a huge desire for nitrogen, as soon mm-hmm. as the place gets built up a little bit, they just are gone. So they right. do, they do yeah. nothing but help. And then like selfless saints, they just fall on their sword <laughs> because they don't. And so to me, like gathering them all up and burning them, uh, yeah, and, and of course, you know, the political parallels are inescapable. Like at the same time, the Parti, mm. the Parti Québécois was talking about who's a real Québécois and who's like, who's, who are, oh, who are, who are like immigrants are not, don't belong here. Oh God, yeah. And so they were using all the kind of language of invasive species to talk about Muslims and other immigrants and stuff like that. So the parallels were inescapable to me and like. So this this program of ethnic cleansing of or no you know fauna you know flora cleansing going around and like you know ripping out all sure. of these helpful plants and burning them I just mm-hmm. I was like I was furious but so what do you think about the idea of invasive species Um I think it's very situa- situationally dependent but you know to your example um if if the greater burdock had come and sort of displaced another species, however far down the line, it's created, you know, habitat for pollinators, it's a food source for pollinators, and then that's removed and nothing is implemented to kind of fill that niche, fill that hole, then you may potentially be doing more harm than good. I don't know that ecosystem well enough to to speak to that, but that's just my sort of um, general comment about that example. Um, There's a great book called Where Do Camels Belong? And it's Uh, sort of a couple case studies on invasive species. It talks about how right now Australia has... Who wrote that? I need to read this. I'll see if I can Google it while I talk. (laughs) I mean, because the the title, I'm deeply intrigued, because, of course, camels emerged in the Americas, uh, traveled over overland into Europe and down into, like, Africa, and then went extinct here, probably because of us. Um, And then... And now they're present in Australia because people, you know, you, they've escaped and people have released them and things like that. And there are very robust populations of them in Australia now. Are yeah. they invasive? Maybe. <laughs> uh, but how, how far back wild. are we going here? Yeah, are they yeah. invasive in, you know, in the, in the places that are, they're currently considered native because they originated in North America? How far back are you going? I think invasive species is... When I first, I'll just say, when I first started working in the environmental field, invasive species were a very, very hot topic. This was 10, 10, 12, kind of 15 years ago. Um, The impacts weren't known, uh, what kind of impacts these invasive species would have, at least to the degree that they were kind of popping up and seeming like this huge, overwhelming issue that was going to destroy ecosystems as we know it. But ecosystems are ever-changing. So I think that it really kind of, it does depend situationally on um, the specific species that are being looked at. But I think we do need to sort of, I'm going to use the phrase, pick our battles because there is so much change going on in this world, very limited support and funding for people conducting this work that I often wonder to myself whether invasive species as a whole um, 
are as truly detrimental as they're sort of made out to be. I think largely there's fear of the unknown and fear of change, and that contributes to the sort of distaste for um, in species that are considered invasive or labeled invasive. Um, often those labels are misapplied. So, for example, red-eared slider turtles here in Ontario um, there isn't really a lot of evidence that suggests that they're truly invasive species to the point that they're going to cause our turtles to decline further than they already are due to our anthropogenic um, pressures. So people call them invasive. Is that really the case? Probably not. Are they, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be here? I don't know, because again, you know, back to the point that you made earlier, um, our boundaries, our borders are a fairly arbitrary human creation. Uh, and that doesn't stop the migration of species. Um, when species are introduced by people, that can definitely be accelerated or these species are brought to areas that they never would have um, never would have been able to access anyway. Does that play into it? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, really I, I, don't, I don't know what you see in, a, in the more milder climate of Southern Ontario, but I know here, <laughs> here, the red-eared sliders that we have here are pets that have been sort of let loose. Yeah. Um, I, I have never once, maybe it exists, but you know, I'm, I'm 45 and I've been spending a lot of time out there, you know, for a long time and I've never yeah. seen a baby ever, okay. ever. I mean, do you have that in Southern Ontario? Yes. They do reproduce in Southern Ontario and they okay. can actually have more, more clutches than our, our native turtles, they can, you know, double clutch. Um, sometimes our eastern spiny softshells double clutch, but generally it's not something that's very common in Ontario turtles, um, largely just due to our climate. It's something that you see more frequently um, in turtles that are, you know, south of the border. They have longer growing seasons. So, yeah, the red-eared sliders are able to successfully overwinter and reproduce here in Ontario. But even then, I, I haven't noticed, again, an impact that would indicate to me that they are devastating our turtle populations, a species that is devastating turtle populations is Phragmites, uh, Australis, European reed. Um, I'm not, I think that that's present in Quebec as well, but it's definitely a, a really hot topic in terms of our hot species, in terms of invasive species management here in Ontario. Um, you know, we have working groups that are solely focused on um, removing as much of the Phragmites Australis as possible. Um, in some of the habitats that I work in, um, where we're working with endangered and very, very sensitive turtle species, Phragmites has completely overrun their habitat to the point where turtles are actually not able to maneuver through it. Um, I've can, seen you, can you explain to people, our listeners who don't know what you're talking about, what this is? Yeah. So common reed is <laughs> a really, it's a grass, um, but it gets, I think about 10, it's definitely taller than me, but I'm a pretty short person. Um, yeah, definitely over six feet, seven feet, eight feet tall. And it grows in very, very dense clusters um, and it will just overtake entire wetlands. So a turtle habitat, which would normally be pretty ideally, you know, like, open to the sun so the turtle can thermoregulate, have lots of like open water pockets for the turtles to be able to maneuver in and forage for food, things like that. The Phragmites australis just takes over everything and doesn't provide those really, really critical um, opportunities for the turtle to engage in its life processes. So I've, I've found turtles that are stuck. It grows so closely, um, sort of um, piece of grass to piece of grass that the turtles can actually get stuck in it while they're moving and they can die. Um, they can't thermoregulate because the Phragmites are so tall and dense that the sun doesn't penetrate down to where they need 
to where the turtles are hanging out. Um, it overtakes nesting sites and overwintering sites. So, I mean, there's an example of a species that um, honestly is thriving in its new habitat, but to the detriment of other species that have very important roles in the ecosystem as well. That's so interesting. I have not, I mean, I know what you're talking about because I've seen it down in Maryland, but like I, sure, yeah. I have never seen this in Quebec. I had I had okay, no idea. <laughs> I had I had no idea that it was this far north. That's uh, that's really that's really Ontario. really sad. I mean, I've seen yeah. I've seen it in Pennsylvania. I've seen it in Maryland. I've seen it in um, in southern New Jersey. And I know what you're sure. talking about. It like it it's it almost it almost feels like like bamboo. Like it's so rigid. It's so strong. Yeah. Like they can't even a baby turtle can't kind of push their way through it it's yeah. uh it's intense i mean like that's it's uh, intense. yeah and is there any kind of native species that are kind of eating it or messing with it i mean like right now um as far as i know no native species are consuming it as part of their natural or regular forage um red-winged blackbirds will sometimes build nests in it um they're i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if there were um maybe pests that were also European that were um, maybe utilizing it as well. But um, to my knowledge, no, it's not really being used by our native species. Um, and I mean, people have probably seen it before just for context. If um, you know anyone's listening and they're not quite sure what it looks like, you'll very frequently see it on roadsides, those really, really dense clusters of tall grass with the big plumes at the top. And I mean, it was, it was originally brought in as an ornamental. Wow. <laughs> but here here the red eared sliders they we don't get any clutches it's just adults okay. and so they will uh you know as far as i can tell they basically end up basking with all of the other turtles and yep. because <laughs> and because you have more turtles on the log it means that you have more eyes looking for predators which means you have a better chance of all jumping in the water before somebody comes to try and eat you. So mm-hmm. it it has seemed to me like in Quebec at least that these invasive species have been you know to a tiny extent probably helpful to the native turtle populations because it's you know there's plenty of food um so it's basically just another set of eyes that are kind of, you know, can jump off into the water and so everybody else does. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me like it would be a more complicated question if I was living in the Niagara Peninsula or something like that. If you're saying that they're actually making babies and mm-hmm. um, I, I, that would be a harder call. <laughs> But our other turtle species are in decline. So while I would prefer to see our native turtles here, the red-eared sliders are being opportunistic. I mean, that's... Some people, just uh, to your comment about them sitting on the log, some people talk about it being competition for our native species and that being an issue. But um, your point about them you know, being another set of eyes is really, really interesting because turtles will often position themselves in a way that um, sort of within the group, they're, they're really looking at every angle. There's a lot of research right now that's actually looking into um, basking congregations to see if they're family groups. 
um, whether they're completely unrelated, what the male-female ratios, things like that are. So it'll be really interesting to see not only how that research plays out in the future, but if we add in this element of this, you know, non-native species that's generally pretty harmless, um, yeah, is it actually something that's positive to the group as a whole? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen turtles in in ponds or, or lakes where there were kind of a, a thin population of turtles. I've seen turtles taken by uh, by raptors and by mm-hmm. by kind of uh, by otters, by raccoons, by you know, a bunch of different things, um, even mm-hmm. even by American crocodiles. Whereas oh, yeah. if you yep. <laughs> if you see like if you see a a pond or a lake where there's a really kind of a critical number of of turtles, there's like a lot of them. They've got a big population, different species and stuff like that. Uh, what you find is, you know, what I've found just from observation is that in places like that, especially when you've got a bunch of old females, you know, mm-hmm. like sort of 20, 30-year-old females, like uh, it's just impossible for a raptor or a, like, because there's just, <laughs> there's like a, yeah, just, there's like, you know, in the water. yeah, there's like 20, <laughs> 20, 30 turtles on that log. And mm-hmm. some of them are, are, are very old and wise. And <laughs> you, you can't get anywhere near that group. Yeah. You know, like, and so I, I wonder, like, that's, that's gotta be like a source of fitness for the community overall. If you have like, you know, and I wonder in a place where let's say like painted turtles or map turtles or whether, where they're threatened, if you have a bunch of invasive red-eared sliders that are just another set of eyes on the log, that might not be so bad. Right. Yeah. It's a good perspective. Yeah, I mean, if they're if they're doing double clutches, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that uh, I'm suddenly getting a knot in my stomach. I I don't know if I'm so comfortable with that. that that's <laughs> yeah. starting. That's starting to look like an invasive species that we might have to like get rid of. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I I just I guess I'm like I'm skeptical of of the idea that invasive species are are categorically bad but i really want to read this book you're talking about about like yeah camels i found the author okay um uh, ken thompson p-h-o-m-p-s-o-n okay and it's yeah uh, it's good i recommend it yeah no, i know i will definitely check that out but so what is your sort of um what is your research on at the moment and what do you want to sort of figure out in the next sort of like five five ten years what is your kind of what 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 are you really excited about right now? Um, so I have a couple of balls in the air right now. Um, we're actually just finishing our research on the gray rat snake radio telemetry. So um, that was a three year project, and I should just say a lot of our projects are so intrinsically linked to funding that we often don't have funding for five, 10 year periods, which is very unfortunate because these long-term studies are so critical to really, really learning about these species, what they need, um, their habits. We, you know, I've, I've mentioned this already, but reptiles are very, very cryptic and doing, you know, these short bursts of research is extremely valuable, but we need more long-term monitoring. That's very important. Um, so with this rat snake project, um, we did three years and we were looking at the um, spatial ecology to see how they utilize their habitat 
um, specifically in the Carolinian region. There's a lot of um, research that comes from Frontenac, so kind of Kingston area, but the habitat is totally, totally different. Um, very light, like a lot of limestone cliffs and things like that, um, bedrock. Uh, whereas, you know, the Carolinian region right by Lake Erie, uh, completely different habitat, Carolinian life zone trees, um, a lot of sand. Um, so we're just looking at how they utilize their habitat differently because um, the population is so at risk. We want to try and mitigate that as much as possible to retain them. Another project uh, that I'm working on is, again, radio telemetry. And we're looking at um, species at risk snakes. So again, gray rat snake, eastern fox snake, and eastern hognose snake. We're looking at their response to prescribed burns in um, oak savanna and prairie habitats that have succumbed to succession. So succession is just when, you know, new trees start moving in and it starts to change the habitat. We once had these big open grassy areas that are really, really great for snakes. And you start getting, you know, quote unquote, maybe invasive Scots pine moving in or even just um, poplars establishing. Um, so the area that we're studying is going to undergo um, a prescribed burn. We've done a lot of vegetation surveys, and uh, we're focusing on a few other species as well, uh, species of butterfly, um, a couple of plant species. Um, but we're, we're, I'm really involved in the analysis of how these snakes are going to react to um, such, a, such an abrupt change in habitat, um, and then over time, how they adjust to a habitat that they're really more suited to. Um, so those are two of my primary projects right now. Wow. Okay. And that's... That's that's fascinating. Wow. Okay. So that's uh, that's what you're working on now. Wow. Yes. <laughs> uh, and if our if our listeners want to uh, want to sort of contribute to this research, where can they go to? The best thing to do would be um, to contact me directly. I think because um, I. I'm contracted by a couple different companies right now, so it sort of depends what they would like to do. Um, if they are just looking to donate to the most amazing cause, uh, Ontario Turtle Conservation Center is truly, truly phenomenal and is completely changing, completely changing things for turtle populations in Ontario. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I'll explain just sort of um, for the listeners. There's a couple different um, facets of the Ontario Turtle Conservation Centre. The primary one that it was founded on was a turtle hospital. So, you know, turtles are very frequently hit on the road mm -hmm. and that has a, a huge impact on their populations. So now in Ontario and also in Quebec, we have had Quebec turtles before, um, you can bring them into the centre and we have an amazing veterinarian who actually fully rehabilitates them, even do physiotherapy with turtles that, um, you know, have lost use of their limbs and things like that. Um, there's also primary research. Um, the Turtle Centre has been doing head starting, which is where they hatch endangered turtle eggs. They raise them for a couple of years so that the animals are more robust, and then they release them into the wild. So right now their research is focusing on whether or not these turtles are adapting in the way that they should be. And so far things have been quite positive. There's also an education component where they go to schools, um, festivals and things like that, and just teach people about turtles. It's really comprehensive. It's really phenomenal. So I would suggest that listeners um, touch base with Ontario Turtle Conservation Center if they're looking to donate. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so oh, much for coming on the podcast. And, thank you so much uh, for having me. Yeah, and I, I definitely, uh, I definitely would like to to talk to you again, um, sort of probably in the kind of midsummer. Uh, there's sure. a, there's a group here that that 
does a lot of uh, kind of specifically rehabilitation of wood turtles here in Quebec, which I which I would love to talk to you about, you know, later okay. on. Because I mean, that that's like one of the issues that they've had with rehabilitation of of wood turtles is that like once you let them go, um, do they know how to forage and find food in their environment because they're like mm-hmm. incredibly intelligent animals and so which are amazing yeah i mean i i oh my god i love those things <laughs> uh, but like those are those are like just they are these very complicated intelligent animals and so mm-hmm. if you've raised them in a captive environment you know are they going to be able to properly navigate a wild environment that's not that's not obvious right so it's definitely a concern and um one of the ways to mitigate for that is to be as hands-off as possible really really limit um any contact that you have with the animals keeping it very strictly to uh you know making sure that their their health is where it needs to be um so you'll do measurements weigh them obviously feeding them and things like that but really try and and keep it as hands-off as possible and again so far there have been um, quite positive results um sort of in the grand scheme of rehabilitation and head starting programs. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's sort of, that, that's basic. I mean, that's like absolutely <laughs> basic in terms of handling. This was mm-hmm. a much more, this was a much deeper and more troubling question, which is that like, uh, it's not so much handling them in terms of their interactions with humans. Like obviously that, that, that's a problem, mm-hmm. but it was more like if you're feeding them a bunch of different things, what mm-hmm. happens when you put them out there and a wood turtle, you know, would have different things it would eat in its environment, which they haven't eaten before. So do they even know to look for those things? Um, right. So far, yeah, so far things have indicated that that is the case, that it that they do um, find the food that they need. Um, replication of a natural diet is a pretty important component so that they do know what to look for. They're not just eating, you know, Zumed pellets from the from the store down the road. Yeah. Um, they have a very varied diet that um, includes live food and teaches them how to actually properly forage. Yeah, that I mean, I just that that's kind of a fascinating, <laughs> like an absolutely oh, yeah. fascinating question. But anyway, uh, we will talk about all this stuff hopefully in the summer. I would love to have you back yeah. on, and uh, thank you so much. All right, thanks so much, John. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye.